you all would stand with me in honor of reading God's word. This morning, our passage is going to come from Luke chapter 3, the rest of uh, chapter 3 after 21, and then the first uh, 15 verses of chapter uh, 4. So Luke 3, 21 through 4, 15. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jani, the son of Joseph, the son of Matthias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsie, the son of Nagai, the son of Math, the son of Matthias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Johan, the son of Resha, Resa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kossum, the son of Almadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joriam, the son of Mahat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Elakim, the son of Melissa, the son of Mena, the son of Matthiah, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arni, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Surig, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, he will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had endured every, ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. This is the word of the Lord.
Thank you, Caleb, for reading that passage. I selected you to do that very particularly. You did a great job. I also want to just take a quick second to thank you all. Uh, many of you guys have, um, uh, I'll, I'll say, Amanda and I were very overwhelmed with the gift that you guys gave us last week, and um, we're just really thankful. We're really thankful for a church that uh, loves and cares about us, so I appreciate that very much. Let me pray, and then we'll jump into into our passage for this morning. Lord, I pray that as we look into your word, your spirit that was upon your son would be here in this place, that, that your spirit would, uh, do, in, would work in us uh, as you promised, your spirit that you sent to open our hearts, illuminate our minds to understand your word to work and apply that word into uh, what we believe, how we think, what we do. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Back in 1 Samuel, back in the book of 1 Samuel, God commanded the prophet Samuel, and he said to him, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. You remember that the people of Israel had begged for a king. They had not just begged for any king, they had begged for a king like the kings of the other nations, not like the kind of king that God had commanded for them. And Samuel was grieved by that. He was grieved Yet God said, no, do it. Give give them what they want. And so Samuel went and found Saul. And Saul was a head taller than everyone else. He looked the part. He looked the part of the kings of all the other people. And yet, God had said in his word, the one who would be a king over the people of Israel would be one from the tribe of Judah, right? You remember, we just finished the book of Genesis, and we remember when uh, Jacob, when Israel is blessing his sons, he says, you know, one of your descendants will be, you, you, Judah, will rule over your brothers. So if they were trusting God's word, they would have known it must be someone from the tribe of Judah. And yet, they find a Benjaminite, Saul. And at first it goes well, and the Spirit of the Lord is on Saul, and he does some good things. And then Saul just starts deciding that he's going to, he's going to kind of do his king thing the way, maybe a little bit the way he wants to. I'm still for you, God, but I'm just going to kind of do it my way a little bit here and there. And what happens? The Spirit leaves Saul. And Saul goes from bad to worse. And so Samuel was mourning the fact that Saul is such a terrible king who is not a king who is seeking to obey God, is not a king who is ruling as God would. And, and here God comes to Samuel and says, what are you whining about? He doesn't actually say that. That's my paraphrase. But and he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, 
for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. And so Samuel goes to Jesse, and Jesse's oldest son comes in, and Jesse, uh, Samuel looks at the oldest son, and this is what Samuel thinks. This is what the word says. Quote, surely the Lord's anointed is before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him, for the Lord does not The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And so after looking at all of Jesse's sons, at least the ones that Jesse brings in, right? Samuel says, the Lord has not chosen these. Are all your sons here? Are these all of them, Jesse? Because it's not one of these guys. And he said... As Jesse said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. It tells you a little bit about what dad, what father Jesse thought about David, right? Uh, I'm so sure it can't be David, I won't even send him in here. I'll leave him to take care of the sheep. So they go and they get David, and it says that when David came in, the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. You see, the right son for the task of ruling God's people is the son that God had chosen, the one that God anointed. The one on whom God's Spirit comes. That's the one who will be God's Son. That's the one who will do the task that God has given him, and only he could do it. But if you know your Bible stories well, you know that while David is a great king in many different ways, David, even David, fails, right? Even he falls short. Yet, there was one to come that would fulfill those promises. There was one to come who would be the true son king. Last week, we read that John the Baptist was preparing the way. Preparing the way for the one who was foretold the one who would come, the Messiah. And he said, the one who is coming is mightier than I, John said. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire, he said. Who is fit for this task? Only the true son. Only the true son of God is fit for this task. I told you a couple weeks ago, as we started the book of Luke, that our book in a sentence, if we were going to take all of the book of Luke, this is my best attempt, and someone else could probably do a lot better job than me, but this is what you got, so sorry. But if I was going to take all the book of Luke and I was going to put it in one sentence, the, the book in a sentence is this, confidently follow Jesus, the long awaited Savior. You can confidently follow Jesus because he's the one that we've been waiting for. He's the one who's the true Savior. He's the one who's the true 
Son of God. And here, before Jesus starts his ministry, how can we know that he is fit for this task? If you were Theophilus, if you remember, Luke says in the, in the first couple of verses, he says that he's writing to uh, his, his, his dear friend Theophilus. If you were Theophilus, you might be asking yourself, well, what makes Jesus qualified to do this? What makes Jesus qualified to be the one who will thresh through people, who will judge all, as our passage last week shared? Who or what qualifies Jesus to be the one who's about to do this ministry? And the point I want to make today is this, <laughs> and I, make it, I made it rhymey just so you'd remember because that's what I do sometimes. Jesus is the son that gets it done. All right? There's your little thing. Put that in your, in your pocket. You keep that. You'll remember it this week. Listen, Jesus is the son that gets it done. Before Luke gets into Jesus's ministry, before he jumps into all the things that Jesus is going to do, he gives us three evidences in this text that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. He is, in fact, the one that God has chosen for the task. First evidence is that he received divine confirmation. Second evidence is that he represented humanity's culmination. Third evidence is that he resisted Satan's temptation. See, look, I am on a roll today with the rhyming stuff, okay? I just want to, I don't get it every week, but today, today you got it. So, evidence one, he received divine confirmation. Look at these first couple of verses. At the very end, uh, or at the, in verse 21 and 22, John's been, the setting is John the Baptist has been out and he's been baptizing people. He's been doing his ministry. All the people, it says, all the people have been coming out and being baptized by John. And then it says, and when Jesus also had been baptized. And I like how the text puts that. It sets Jesus's baptism apart from the baptisms of everyone else because this one's going to be a little bit unique. When it happens, it says the Holy Spirit comes down in bodily form and it says like a dove. Now, now it says like a dove, not in reference to the bodily form, but in reference to how the Holy Spirit descends. I think it's important to understand that can kind of be, has been a confusing point for some people that when it says like, like a dove, the way that the Greek words are working there is it's in reference to the way, it, the method in which it descends, not the form in which it descends. And so, you know, we use doves to represent the Holy Spirit, and that's all well and good, but don't sit here thinking that the Holy Spirit looks like a dove coming down. That's not what it intends to communicate. So, nevertheless, the Holy Spirit is confirmation of this fact, the, the, the one who is anointed is the one who has the Holy Spirit. That would have been evident to every single Jew in that day. That, of course, you look in the Old Testament all over the place, whether it be the passage I read before, whether it be uh, the prophecies about the one who would come, they are the one, the one who's anointed is the one who has the Holy Spirit. But this anointed one, but the anointed one, will have the Holy Spirit without 
measure. You see, the Holy Spirit came on Saul and then left, right? But on this one, on the anointed one, the Holy Spirit would come in a different way, without measure. And then there's this voice, and this is, this is the main piece I want to highlight here. There's this voice that, that comes, and, and the voice says, You are my beloved son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, now here there's probably at least two Old Testament allusions happening. The first one is to Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and I'll, I'll tell you what it says. It says there, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And we talk, we talk a lot about Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, right? As Jesus is the son, right? So much so that it's easy to just think in this statement where he says, you are my beloved son, that it's simply just talking about the one and only, Jesus is the one and only begotten Son. And it, and it certainly doesn't deny that, but I think that Psalm 2 actually gives us something more specific than that. See, Psalm 2 is about this Son who would be a king. It's about a Son who is royal. After King David, but greater. That David, even in his grandeur, is just a shadow of this son that is to come, who is the substance of the thing. So that's the first illusion in this passage. The second probably comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. And it's a description there in Isaiah of God's chosen servant. It says this in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. This is the one whom God has chosen to bring in a new era of salvation. Next week, we'll, Jesus will identify himself, actually, as fulfilling this prophecy, as fulfilling the prophecies of, of Isaiah, of the prophecies of all the, the suffering servants, all the servants of God that are, that are spoken of there. And Jesus will say, I'm fulfilling that. And so Jesus brings together these, these two Old Testament ideas, these two uh, ideas that would have been familiar to the first century Jew. He is God's prophesied Messiah. He is the servant son king the victorious servant that Luke has been describing in the first two chapters, God himself, at Jesus' baptism, says, that's him. That's him. And so evidence one is that there's, there's a, a divine confirmation. Evidence two, he represented, Jesus represented humanity's culmination. Now, now here's a section of your Bible, that when you're doing your Bible reading plan, that I hope you're doing, there's bookmarks in the back if you'd like to do read through the Bible in a year. I would love for you to do that. It's not too late to get caught up. It's only maybe 15 minutes of reading a day. Um, would love for you to read through the Bible with us. But as you're reading through your Bible, this is a section that maybe you might be tempted to go, eh, blah, 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 uh, moving on, right? And I get where you're coming from with that. But Luke 
is very precise. And Luke has a reason for putting this here, right? He has a reason for adding this, for including this in his gospel. And I think the genealogy here has two unique characteristics that, that, I, that I think point to its purpose for Luke. The first un- unique part of, about Luke's genealogy is the placement of it. You, if you've read Matthew, so if you are doing the Bible reading plan, then, then I, I believe you would have read Matthew 1 already, Matthew 2, Matthew 3. And if you've read that, then you know that Matthew's gospel starts with the genealogy. And you might expect that, that we'd start with the genealogy. It seems odd that after the baptism and before the temptation, that that is the place that Luke would insert this. It seems out of place, almost like a footnote, right? But Luke puts it here very intentionally, right after the divine confirmation of Jesus' sonship, right after the Spirit coming, you know, being declared as being on Him, right after the declaration that Jesus is starting His ministry, and yet before the temptation, there's a very particular reason that He puts it there. The second unique thing that uh, is special about Luke's genealogy is that whereas Matthew's genealogy starts uh, at Abraham and then works its way down to Jesus... Luke's genealogy starts at Jesus and works its way down, and if you were a Jew reading this, you would expect it to end at Abraham, but it doesn't. Just when you think that the genealogy is going to stop, Luke's like, let me keep going a little bit. And he gets all the way down to Adam, and then he says, and Adam is the son of God. Jesus has universal significance as the culmination of all of humanity. All of everyone who has lived from Adam until Jesus, everything is funneling into this one person. Adam was the son of God. Jesus is the new son of God. How does that all come together. Well, in order to bring that all together, we need to start at the beginning. And yes, I mean that beginning, right? Buckle up. We're going to be here for a while. No, I'm just joking. God has always had sons. Sons who are supposed to be serving Him. Serving Him by ruling under Him. All the sons were types for Christ. They were shadows of who Jesus would be, and they all fell short of Him, but they all pointed forward to the Son who would not fall short. So Adam, who's here described as the Son of God, if you remember in Genesis 2, he's given a place, he's given the garden, and he's told to do two things. He's told to have dominion there, and then he's told to work and keep the garden. And he was to rule, so he was to rule on God's behalf as a true son king, and then he was to work and keep, that is to serve and to guard that kingdom in which God had placed him, the garden of God's presence, where God dwelt and walked among him. It's interesting, those two commands, uh, work and keep, those, those two Hebrew words, the only other place where those two words are put together is when it's describing the work of the Levitical priests in the tabernacle, in the, other, in the place where God's presence would be there, right? They're very unique words. 
And so Adam was a servant son king with duties in the place of God's dwelling, right? And he was tasked to fill the world with God's garden kingdom. But Adam failed. He failed to guard it, didn't he? He failed to guard it against the tempter who came. He failed to maintain his loyalty to the true king, the creator of all. But even at that moment, even at that moment, at that point of initial failure, we're told there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, if you remember, that, that, that the offspring of the woman would one day crush the head of the offspring of the serpent, right? That promise is given. And so you're starting to see, hopefully, how this genealogy is actually a really good basis, a really good starting point for the temptation that's about to come and for what Christ is about to do. So through a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and 15 and chapter 17 and so on, this task is given to all of Israel, all of, of, of Abraham's descendants, and Israel is described in the Old Testament as the Son of God again. So we have another Son of God. And in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, God says that all the earth is his. And yet he calls all of Israel, who he just saved from Egypt, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and a new kingdom of God, which he describes as the promised land, the place in which he's taking them. And then it's going to be a new dwelling place. There's a new dwelling place, right, called the tabernacle, where God's presence is going to be. And then when kings of Israel come about, the first task that a king of Israel was given, I don't know if you know this, but the very first task that any king of Israel was to do, do you know what it is? They were to take the book of the law, and they would take a blank book, and they were to write down all the book of the law for themselves, and the scribe would check it to make sure it was okay, and then the king was to keep that book and to read it every single day. Why was he told to do that? Because he, as the representative for the people, as God's son king for all of God's people, was to make sure that the people followed it. He was, in a sense, though he wasn't a Levitical priest, he was a sort of priest over all of God's people. And God made a promise to David that his offspring would, would bring about an everlasting kingdom, and that his offspring would sit on the throne forever, but, but the people of Israel failed. They were not a kingdom of priests. They went and served other gods. And David failed, and Solomon failed more. And so the kings continued to fail more and more and more and more and more. And yet God made that promise, and he said, I'll keep that promise. And so all the sons have been shadows, blurry images that give us some idea of what the true son one day would be like. But if this true seed of the woman... We'll be able to fulfill the plan of God to crush the serpent's head, to establish an everlasting kingdom, to sit on the throne forever, then he can't be like Adam, and he can't be like Israel, and he can't be like David. He has to do it, right? 
is to do what they failed to do and more. He needs, he has to be tested. And so we have evidence number three. Jesus resisted Satan's temptation. And the temptation is really the climax of the series of scenes. But God is not surprised by this turn of events. This is what Satan always does, right? It's expected. In fact, the Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness to it. It's not like the Spirit's like, hey, go into the wilderness for a while and don't eat for 40 days. And ooh, crud, Satan showed up. Oh man, didn't see that coming. This is all part of the plan. But whereas Israel complained and got manna from heaven to eat, and whereas Adam was in a garden surrounded by all sorts of fruit, Jesus is in the wilderness, and the Spirit says, don't eat for 40 days. I want you to see that whereas the previous representatives were dealt much better hands than the hand God deals, His one and only Son, right? All the other sons were dealt better hands than the hand that God gave Jesus. In fact, God gave Jesus a bad hand on purpose. See, some of you have been dealt rough lots in life. Look, I know it. Things have happened in your life, situation you were raised in, whatever it is. hands that you feel have been worse than other people's hands, and that that they've actually led you to sin in in ways that maybe other people's hands wouldn't lead them to sin, right? Tougher situations. And and I don't want to take anything away from that, because that that is true. Sometimes people are are dealt with worse hands. The question that comes to us is, is it fair for God to hold you to the same standard as them when your hand is worse than their hand, right? It's a question that we ask ourselves, and I want to assure you this, you have been dealt a better hand than Jesus was dealt. God dealt you a better hand than Jesus was dealt. Jesus did it. He's the standard. He's the standard. And we don't get to say, but God, you dealt me a bad hand. We don't get to justify ourselves in that way. There's only one thing that can justify us, and it's the work of Jesus Christ on the cross because he got dealt the worst hand and he did it anyways. See, Jesus will do in the worst circumstances what humanity's first representative and all of those that followed failed to do in much better and best circumstances. And it's only because of that, and because he was dealt the worst hand, and because he did it anyways, that he, as the true son, has the authority and power to make us sons. So, Jesus is the son that can get it done. Now listen, we don't have time to, I'd love, I'd love to, 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 to get into each one of these temptations really in, in detail, but we, we don't, you don't want to be here for the next two hours, and I get that. So I'm going to give you a, an overview of them, and hopefully I'll, I'll be able to bring all of this together for us. So, so there's three temptations that Satan 
brings to Jesus that are recorded here. The first temptation is to turn stones into bread. And that makes sense, right? Jesus is pretty hungry. I remember one time, one time I thought I was, you know, I'm going to do this fast. And I fasted for 50 hours. And I literally was like, I thought I was going to die. I thought, I don't know. I can't last 40 hours. Jesus went 40 days, you know. I was like ready to eat my fingers off. 40 days later, Satan himself comes and he says, look, turn these stones to bread. Just turn these stones to bread and you can have some food. I mean, John the Baptist last week said that that God could raise up children for himself from the stones. How easy is it to make some bread, right? I mean, you're hungry. Hunger isn't a bad desire. That's a, that's a, a good thing to eat, you know, and so, so just turn the stones to bread, and, and, and that'll be fine. In fact, Jesus will later on produce food miraculously, will he not? So why can't he do it here? You see, the crux comes in the context of the passage Jesus quotes back. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3 is what he quotes. You see, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, failing to believe God for things. The people of Israel are preparing to enter the promised land, finally, and Moses is reminding them of some things. And he says, hey, when you enter, when you entered into the promised land, remember how God had provided for you all of these years. He provided the manna when you needed it. God had, has demonstrated to you his provision. God is good, And you may be hungry at times, but don't forget that God does provide. See, if Jesus had been led into the wilderness to fast, it was God who would give him the right food at the right time. It was not for Jesus to decide. It was not for Jesus to do in his own way. Rather, He was to trust God's word. And so he says, don't you know, man cannot live on bread alone, but on every word of God. I don't trust my belly. I trust God's word. I don't trust what I feel like I need in this moment. I trust God's promises. I know God did that in the past. I know God did that in the past. I know that God has done that in my life. I know he has me here in this moment by his providence. And it, and it seems to me in this moment, it could seem to me that he's withholding this fruit from me. Why is he doing that? He must not really be good. So we say to ourselves, right? If he's withholding that thing, that thing that isn't necessarily in itself a bad thing, if he's withholding that from me, he must not be good. Because I know that's good. The issue isn't eating. It isn't the fruit. It isn't the bread. The issue is, will you trust God or won't you? Will you trust his word or won't you? Will you live by faith in him or won't you? Will you break ranks with your father or will you stay loyal to him? Because he is loyal to you. Even if you don't feel like it in the moment, Israel, remember when you enter the promised land, everything that he has done for you over and over and over and over again. 
temptation here isn't to eat, to make bread out of stones. The temptation is to not trust God's word. There's another temptation. That one doesn't work. Satan's like, okay, well, I got more options. The second temptation is to bow to Satan in order to gain rule. The devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world all at once. How does he do that? Not sure. I'm not planning on explaining that right now. Nevertheless, that's what he does. Satan offers them all to Jesus. He says, look, I'll give you all these kingdoms if you just just worship me a bit. That's all you got to do. Now, some have said that this must be a false offer. These these kingdoms are not Satan's to give, but I just, I don't think Satan is dumb enough to think that Jesus would fall for a false offer, offer here. I just don't, I don't, I can't buy that logic. I believe, it's my contention, that this is a real offer. And think about this. God owns all the world. We, we all agree with that. God owns all the world. Ultimately, he has ownership of everything. And yet, Back in Genesis chapter 2, Adam is given rulership on God's behalf in the garden, is he not? He's given a kingdom to rule over. And that rule was supposed to expand, but but Adam fails, right? Uh, Satan had a very real rule over the kingdoms of the world. And even Jesus in his life says, no, Satan is the ruler of this world. It's not a rule that overrides God's power or his sovereignty in any way, shape, or form, but a kingdom that God intended to take down in a particular way through his son. John 12, if we looked at John 12, 31 and 32, you can look at that later, Jesus himself says, the ruler of this world will be cast out, not when Jesus bows the knee, but when he is lifted up, it says, and what he's referring to, what Jesus is referring to is the cross. This is how I take down his kingdom. Not by Jesus bowing the knee, but by Jesus being hung on the cross. That's how I'm going to do it. And so when, when Satan brings Jesus to this pinnacle of the temple, and he, or, or to, I mean to the high, wherever he is, that you can see all the, 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 the kingdoms of the world, right? And, and, he's, and he says, I'll, I'll offer all these to you if you just bow the knee to me. saying, will you take this thing that's promised to you, but take it in the wrong way? You see, in that same book, or that same chapter, Psalm 2, the very next verse, Psalm 2, verse 8, it says this, God is saying of this son, ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. God had promised to his son king all the earth, all the kingdoms. And Satan is saying, look, I think the way that this father guy, I think the way that he's going to do that, that sounds, that sounds like it's going to be kind of hard. I've got a simpler, quicker way. Bow the knee to me, and I'll give them to you. And some have read this 
And they said, see, Jesus' refusal here, it says that, 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 that tells us that Jesus doesn't intend to rule the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't intend to do it because he turns, he turns it down. But, but that, that logic disregards the fact that the, that same Jesus says later, after he has hung on the cross and rose from the dead, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus will have, Jesus does have right now what Satan offers, but he won it on the cross and he won it in the grave. The issue here isn't that Jesus is rejecting ruling over the earth. The issue is how will that rule come to pass? The question isn't, is Jesus ruling right now? The question for you is, how did he win that rule? And what are you doing about it? What will you do about it? Are you in that rule? Or are you outside of that rule? See, Satan saying, hey, look, I got an easier path than submitting to the Father's plan. Just bow the knee to me a little bit. You can have it all. Do you really trust that the Father is going to make good on his promise? And even if he does, do you really want to go through it that way? How often do we say that? Yeah, God maybe will do that, but that, the way, I don't know if I like the way he wants to make that happen. Maybe I'll just make that happen my own way. How often do we short circuit? How often do we try to shortcut God's plan? But all we do is ruin things. There can be no alliance with Satan. An alliance with Satan of any kind is a rejection of allegiance to the Father. Period. It is black and white. Jesus responds by quoting Deuteronomy 6.13. God isn't merely the top God in our life. He is the only God in our life. He has an exclusive claim on our worship, first as our creator, second as our savior. He promises. And here, here's the deal. He's so gracious, too, because he promises to exalt his son at the right time, and he promises to exalt all of his children, but it's in the right time, and it's in his way. It has to be. We think we can exalt ourselves, but what will happen if we try to exalt ourselves? We will be brought down. But if we bow the knee to God, he will raise us up. God's kingdom has never moved forward by bowing the knee to the world or to Satan. It didn't help Adam expand the garden, did it? It got him kicked out. It cannot. It cannot advance the gospel by offering some other good news. It cannot advance God's kingdom by submitting to some other kingdom. It does not work that way. It cannot work that way. And sometimes we try to convince ourselves, but this will be a better way. But this will be an easier way. We try to use our own wisdom, right? But in the end, we end up just stubbing our toes. We end up actually setting ourselves back.
For instance, I've heard people say, I'll just give this an example. I've had people say, you know, maybe we shouldn't make a big deal out of something like abortion. Because it, it just, it may annoy people. And then they won't hear the gospel. We need them to hear the gospel so then they'll, you know, then they'll stop, you know, the, the, the views on that will change once God changed them and all, all this kind of stuff. But to me, that seems like a foolish argument. It seems like saying, well, maybe, maybe the Pharisees and Herod and all of these other people, maybe, maybe they wouldn't have killed Jesus if he would just, if Jesus would just not have annoyed them by confronting their injustice and their unrighteousness. And then all that wouldn't have had to happen. You see, if Jesus had bowed the knee to Satan there, they all would still have killed him because their consciences are are seared. They don't care. And the consequence would be that that if Jesus hadn't spoken the truth, think of all the people who who actually were being prepared by the Spirit to confess their need for a Savior, to confess their need for, for someone to do for them what they couldn't do for themselves, and they wouldn't have heard the truth, they wouldn't have been convicted, they wouldn't have come to him, they would have said, well, well, if Jesus really is who he says he is, if he really is the Messiah, then he should be calling out these injustices and these unrighteousness. Friends, I wonder how many people look at us Christians and they say, well, if you really are who you say you are, if you really believe what you say you believe, then you shouldn't be folding like a chair whether or not people like you or not. You should be doing what's right. You should be saying what's right. I'm not saying in an unloving way. I'm not saying in an intentionally mean-spirited way. But we cannot gain God's kingdom by bowing the knee to some other kingdom. The third temptation, to test God's protection. You see, Jesus has answered the last two temptations with Scripture. Satan gets pretty tricky this time. He quotes Scripture in his temptation. Don't you know? See, see listen, Satan knows the Bible better than you know the Bible. I, I hate to break it to you. Satan knows the Bible better than you know the Bible. I don't, I don't have confirmation that he has the whole thing memorized, but I would not be surprised. He's, got a few, he's had a few years to figure it out, okay? That doesn't mean he understands the scriptures, because Paul says if he had understood what the scriptures said, he wouldn't crucify Jesus, right? So we've got that advantage because we've got the Holy Spirit, but he knows the Bible, and this should give us pause. It should give us pause that Satan uses things that may initially sound really Christian-y, may initially sound really biblical, but he twists them and he makes them wrong. It should give us pause when we're tempted to use a verse in a way that, that meets our needs, needs, even if we're taking it out of the context and what the verse actually means in the Bible, right? But it sounds really good, so I'll just use it in that way, and it gets me what I want. This is why I'm encouraging you to take a bookmark and read through the entire Bible, right? So Satan takes Jesus to the temple, and he says, throw yourself down. If you're God's son, he'll protect you. He can't kill his own son. You've got things to do, right? You've got this ministry you're supposed to do. So, so throw yourself down. I pro- you know, God, will, God will protect you. Doesn't he have to? He can't let you die. Wouldn't letting you die ruin everything? Just let that sit for a second. Ah, Satan doesn't get it, does he? 
And so Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6.16, where Moses is reminding the people of what happened in Exodus 17. I know that's a lot of like, but that's what's going on, right? Deuteronomy 6.16, Moses is right before the people are going into the promised land. He's reminding them of things that have happened in in their their 40-year journey so that they don't make those same mistakes again in the promised land. He says, remember what happened back in, in Massa. It was there that the people, because they were thirsty, complained that they shouldn't have left Egypt. It was there that the people said, I'm so thirsty in this desert. This God that was supposed to be our God led us out here to die. I wish we would have just stayed in Egypt. It was there that the people ignored the fact that God had been raining manna from heaven for years. It was there that they forgot that they were enslaved in Egypt and God parted the Red Sea and, and led them out of there. It was there that none of that was sufficient enough to trust God for water. So Satan takes Jesus up on the temple. Ironically, the place of God's presence, right? Temples thought to be the place where God was most present. And here, Jesus refers to Exodus 17 where the people said, yeah, I know the manna, I know the, the, the deliverance from slavery, but God is not with us. And Satan says, let's see if God shows up. Throw yourself down. I like how one commentator summarized this. He said, quote, it says in effect, I do not think you will take care of me as son. So to be sure, I'm going to place you in a situation, you, God, in a situation where you must take care of me now and on my terms. The demanding of a miraculous protection where it is not needed is not faith or loyalty, it is sin. See, all three temptations, all three relate to Jesus' sonship. The first and the third are explicit. If you're really the son of God, The second is implicit, right, through Psalm 2, verse 8. But Satan is not saying, Jesus, I don't think you're God's son. They both know that that, they both have no doubts about that fact. What Satan is trying to do in his temptations is to call into question the promises of the Father. He's not calling into question the person of the Son, his identity. He's calling into question the promises of the the Father. He wants to see if Jesus will do what a true son is supposed to do. He wants to see if Jesus will stay loyal to his Father or if he'll break ranks. That's what Satan has always done. And that's what he continues to do. And so our passage ends with this brief note. Satan, it says, leaves until he has an opportune time, right? We know what that time will be when he tries to take Jesus down a different way. And Jesus goes in the power of the Spirit, and he begins to teach the people, begins to do this ministry. And when the people heard it, it says they glor- they, Jesus was glorified by all. And that phrase there, being glorified by all, is a phrase that, that everywhere else is, is used of glorifying God alone, right? And so the initial reception of Jesus' teaching is good, but it won't keep up. People will start to reject him. People will start to hate him. They'll start to say things that don't, they don't, he'll start to say things they don't like, and he'll refuse to do things that they want him to do.
And they'll refuse to trust God. They'll refuse to trust that God will keep his promises in his own way. Even if he doesn't keep them in their way. And what's interesting is not, what's interesting is that because Jesus trusts God, because Jesus does this in God's way, he's actually not saved from harm. As I said, because he trusts God, he actually dies. He actually dies. And yet, this does not mean that the Father fails to keep his promises. It does not mean the Father fails to keep his promises to the Son. Rather, because of that, Jesus becomes the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Let that sit for a second. The Father does not fail to keep his promises to the Son because the Son dies, but rather because the Son trusts the Father, does what he says, and dies, now the Son becomes the fulfillment of all the promises. Because this is God's wisdom. It's not the wisdom of man. All the promises of God are yes in him, 2 Corinthians 1.20. And so Jesus is the bread of life to us, and he is the very word of God. Jesus is the one who is given all authority and and to whom we owe all of our worship. And through faith in him, we will be exalted and rule with him one day. Jesus is the temple torn down and rebuilt in three days for us so that the presence of God is not just with us, but in us, right? And so we, when we don't promise God, when we don't uh, trust the promises of God, we grab for things that are so much less than what God has for us. We take scraps when he's offered us a banquet. Friends, I know it's hard to trust God in the moment, in the wilderness, when it's difficult. But he has a banquet for you. He has so much more for you. But it starts with believing him, with believing his promises. See, Jesus is the servant, son, king that does not write the law in a book, but he writes the law on the very hearts of his people. He's the first king that's ever done that. It's only through faith in this son and what he has done that any of us can be called sons of God. That's what he's done. God chooses his sons. He anoints them with his Holy Spirit. Church, that's you because of Christ. He has done it through Jesus. You see, Jesus is the loyal son who makes rebel sinners into sons as well because he trusted the father. He's the son that gets it done. So in your wilderness moment, when temptation comes, and it comes, it's probably come today already, It'll come this afternoon. It'll come tomorrow. 
Will we seek to fill ourselves with something other than God's word? Will we bow down to something else if we think it will get us what we desire? Will we seek refuge in something other than Christ? See, under every temptation is this one question. Will I trust God's promises or not? So Psalm 2 ends like this, and this is how I'll end the sermon. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way, for His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Let's pray.